Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Wade and I have a special guest today, Daniel uh, Waldschmidt, who is a pastor. I forget even what town. St. John's in Burlington. Burlington. I was going to say Burlington. Burlington is the uh, home of Burlington Coat Factory. Favorite son of Burlington. Tony Romo. Yep. Yep. Tony Romo. That's correct. That's right. Yeah. So who uh, I would say is probably my favorite announcer right now for the NFL. Okay. All right, uh, Daniel. You don't like him? You're a no, he's fine. I don't know. I actually like him. Yeah, I think he does a good job. I think he got. I think he was underrated as a quarterback. I think if he was not with the Dallas Cowboys, he probably would have been better. I think the Cowboys yeah. ruined. I was mostly. I like him as an announcer. I was indifferent as far as a quarterback. Yeah, he's all right. I mean, I don't. I don't watch the NFL as much as you do. Yeah, I was just putting that on people's radar. All right, go yeah. ahead though. Yeah, no, that's very good. So uh, Pastor Waldschmidt has um, done some work on the new perspective of Paul. And uh, we did some stuff on Pauline's epistles, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe a month ago. And we got a request for this. And so... You're making things singular and plural in a weird way. We just stop it. All right. You said new perspective of Paul instead of perspectives. And then you said something else that you just made. Okay. Plural that was... I'm going to try to get through this. You said this. Pauline's epistles. Pauline epistles. Well, I, my, my apologies. I'm just saying focus. My apology. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, and I said, wait, do you know anything about the new perspective on Paul? And he said, I've heard about it. And I said, yeah, I sort of know as much as you do. And so then I remembered that you had done a nice paper on this, Paul, so, or Daniel. So we, uh, we, uh, he's graciously driven from Burlington, which is a good half an hour, probably longer on the way back, um, out of his busy schedule to come and school us on the news, Paul's perspectives. Yeah. What do I got here, Mike? Yeah, you have a tea bag. I've, <laughs> I've been drinking tea during the podcast. I yep, think it classes it's, it's it up. Super, and uh, super classy. It's made me cough less. I think I've noticeably coughed less. I still cough, yeah. but that's very good. You have some stuff on fifteen seventeen. You need to mention. I feel like you could have affirmed me a little bit more about. The tea. I think you look super classy. Are you proud of me? Nope. Okay. The uh, for fifteen seventeen, just a couple things to note. Obviously, we are part of the fifteen seventeen podcasting network. I'm encourage you to check that out as well as the other resources at 1517.org. Um, daily blog posts and other stuff. Mike, did you happen to see who the blog post today was by? I did not. You want to guess? It was you. It was by me on yeah, the Transfiguration. Nice. You got nice. one coming out on it though too, right? You know, and I'm preaching on Transfiguration too, and I forgot about that. I wrote the sermon forgetting that I just wrote something on it. I couldn't. But you, you do up. have a blog post on it coming too, right? Yeah, but I think they may use it next year since we both sent something in. Well, if it comes out in the next few days, I think listeners should decide which one's better and let us know. We should have polls. Yeah. Which one's better. If Peter listens to the podcast anymore, he should make one of those. Okay. Um, and then uh, also, 1517 had uh, one of the, an episode we've talked about doing for a long time now is one on the book of James. Um, a lot of Lutherans try to figure out what they should do with James. And uh, 1517, uh, they are sending us uh, copies. We've not got to read it yet. But does have a uh, a book coming out, and I, I mention it now because it, it's a forty day devotion. So I believe it be, might be workable for the Lenten season. Um, by uh, Bob Hiller, who we've met at the conferences out there, uh, Finding Christ in the Straw, a forty day devotion on the Epistle of James. So you can also check that out at fifteen seventeen, or at Amazon. And when we get our copies, maybe we'll do an episode on Boy, James. I don't know. I I just last night uh, watched the Frontline episode on on Amazon. What does that have to do with James? I don't think that, because you just said it was on Amazon, and I don't know if I should buy it from Amazon now. What's Frontline? Frontline is like like PBS. 
investigative reporting, and they did oh, it nice. And the that's guy still going. I remember that back in the day, but yeah. And then the guy um, who's the author that we just did a book on on him. Um, the do we do death of expertise? Some? Yeah, no, no. So no. He, he was he the one that was slamming Amazon? Oh, no, human no, no, no. alter or. Uh, Team, World no. Without Mind. Yeah. He was on By there. By Franklin Four. Yeah. He, so Franklin was on there. Huh. So actually, I was, they did not, actually, I went away thinking, ah, I'm okay. I'm, I'm, I'm less angry at Amazon after it, to be honest with you. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to watch that if that's online somewhere. But I, I will, maybe you should buy books from directly from the publisher rather from than 15, from Amazon. You can do that too. You can order yes. directly from 15 you, tri- you triggered me there. I'm sorry. You triggered me with that. So I encourage you to, to check that out at Amazon or at fifteen seventeen. Pastor Walshman, what do you think about Amazon, Apple, and what was the acronym he meant? He that oh, author Facebook, Amazon, Google. It was like and there's a fourth one. Amazon, Apple, Google, Google. and Facebook, and he called it like Gaffa or something like that. Yeah, whatever it was. How do you feel about big tech? I really like that I have Amazon Prime and that I can get a book in two days. That's a good stance. That is a good stance. Yes. Well, so I meant I meant to mention the book earlier. My apologies for not having done so, but we uh, most of our episodes that came out lately we had recorded earlier, so that we're kind of catching up to getting back week to week. So I encourage people, remind them to check out fifteen seventeen and then the book on James. And don't forget about uh, our apologetics courses at uh, Wisconsin Lutheran College. We have two. Uh, June 15th to 19th, a practical apologetics class. Um, I am co-teaching that with our physicist, uh, Dr. Kerry Keene. And then we're bringing in Pastor Luke Thompson, who's going to talk about uh, postmodernism in, a, I think, a unique way. And that's June 22nd to 26th. You can go to blackearthapologetics.com or email me for more information. We'd love to have you. With that, We'd like to give you our disclaimer. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time, it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism, because well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. And that brings us to our free-for-all, and we're going to discuss in the free-for-all, um, Something that will be timely if all goes as planned. This episode will come out Peter next Tuesday, um, which would be Shrove Tuesday. Is that what you're supposed to call it if you're Lutheran? Mm-hmm. Or what do we call it? Or Fat Tuesday or Mardi Gras. We don't have a preferred one. I thought it was pancakes or something for Shrove. I don't know what is Shrove. Uh, I just know that I thought Lutherans, we some Paul Lutherans that. did stuff for that. Yeah, Paul Lanninger that. Okay. So it should be out on Shrove Tuesday. Um, or whatever your preferred adjective is. Um, the next day being Ash Wednesday and the beginning of Lent. So what I thought we could talk about in our free-for-all would be what's your favorite thing about Lent. Now, this doesn't have to be favorite. Like, it's happy you enjoy it. Um, but maybe it's the thing that strikes you about the Lenten season. Uh, three of us who have been in the parish or in the parish. Maybe it's um, what strikes you most about serving in the parish or preaching in the Lenten season. 
But favorite thing about the Lenten season? Mike, why don't you go ahead and lead us off? I, I like, honestly, the change of pace. Um, I, when looking back, um, when I'm, what, one of the things I miss um, selfishly, you know, there's certain things you miss, like, you know, you miss baptizing babies, right? Um, being outside of a parish. Yeah, we were um, supposed to do that? Well, it depends on where oh, you stand geez. on that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know? I must have zoned out at some. Yeah. You're supposed to baptize babies. Oh, jeez. But not like, you don't like spray them when they come out. Yeah. I mean, no, I better I better call some people. Okay. <laughs> Apologize. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure that they get that. Are your children baptized? They are now. I mean, they, okay. meet, they reach the age of discretion. All right. <laughs> um. I'm just joking. They, but I miss they the, aren't capable of making decisions. So <laughs> no, they, they are not terrible Baptists. Um, so I do miss kind of the ebb and the flow of the church here, and especially when you went from Transfiguration Sunday, which we would celebrate as the last Sunday of the Epiphany season, to Lent, um, and all the different things that you got to do. Right? I mean, the, you want to have variety, but not variety for the sake of variety in your liturgics and your preaching and all of this kind of stuff, the church life. And so what I enjoyed Lent, about Lent the most was just the overall, you were, there was a lot of th- cool things that you would change. You would change the colors. You would, we wouldn't have flowers. Um, we veiled uh, the images of Christ. Um, For all of Lent or are you talking Monday Thursday? We did all of Lent. You know, I can see some people, some people would do it later. Um, just all of those little things that are, are meaningful. And my experience was that, that's when people were most attuned, most faithful in their church attendance, right? Which was kind of runs opposite of the idea that you just kind of have to be happy, clappy all the time. You know, that's, that's a very small segment of people that, that push that agenda. I think for the vast majority of people, uh, this is when people would come off the streets into the church as well. Uh, more often than not, they still had that rhythm and stuff. So there were a lot of people on the streets in Wood Lake. Well, there's, yeah, there actually was a very transient, population from because uh, it was cheap housing ah. so here there and then gone um, actually yeah so um, but anyway I think I'm, so I'm going to my answer is kind of a cop out but I'm going to say just the overall move from something to something else without having to say it just by doing something different and uh, the aesthetics of the church all that kind of stuff so all right, we usually let our guest go next, unless you want to punt. I don't think I'll punt. I think I'll think about this one. You know, I, I go back and forth between whether I like Paul more or whether I like the Gospels more. And for a while, I just think, man, the Gospels are just amazing, each one of them, to read through each one of them. And one of the things I like the most about Lent is that you get to hear the Passion again and walk with Jesus and especially during Holy Week that you get to be there on Palm Sunday and be there on Monday Thursday in the upper room and be there on Good Friday and then come to come to Easter Sunday again and look at one of the gospel accounts whether it's from John or Ma- uh, Matthew or Mark or Luke and it just never gets it just never gets old the gospels don't get old no I think that's a good one and that would be um I I have two that I go back and forth on in the the first would, would be the, the midweek services. Um, having a midweek service that is pretty well attended, I think a lot of Lutheran churches, it's one that, it's not like when you happen to have a service during the week and you get the handful. Um, and and I would, I, I, I wish pastors always would, but 
I know sometimes we get these sermon series for, for Lent that they're not the passion narrative, but I, I especially appreciate when it is the passion narrative in Lent because those it's just a time to be law and gospel in it, mm-hmm. a, a way that has powerful illustrations. And I think the second one for me that I guess I'll go with is uh, would be the hymnody. I think sometimes people, when it comes to Lenten hymns, because they're more minor, what do you call that, minor key or whatever, I don't know music that well. Um, but the poetry of Lent is... Uh, I mean, it's it's just uh, often very striking. It's very personal. The hymns often are, um, they're. I mean, most of our hymns are Christ centered, but they're they're Christ centered in a way that is hard to get around. And uh, and so I would have to say, Lent is one of those seasons where I and you actually have a chance too. It's not like Christmas and some of the other where it goes so quickly. It's hard to get to all the hymns if you plan out well during the Lenten season. You can really sing uh, a wide variety. Um, you know, through the breath of the the hymnody we've been given, um, so I I think uh, the hymns are way up there for me for Lent. That's a good choice. That's a good choice. I looked up, by the way, Shrove Tuesday. Yeah. Um, it comes from it means to get absol- absolution to get absolved. So. The second part's not so good in doing penance. Mm-hmm. So I think the Lutherans we keep the yeah. absolved part. But there's but, a pancake there thing. Yeah. Too, yeah. And they did that because during Lent you weren't supposed to have the uh, the eggs and the butter in that. Yeah. So you used it all up that day. You made that's right. Made I didn't know that. We I, I I feel like we did a thing on Lent last year and had this very same conversation that where we be. didn't know and we looked it up on our phones. Yeah, we've had this conversation. You know, before. growing up in a uh, a Polish Catholic parish, although I was I'm not Polish myself, so I was, <clears throat> I was always terribly mistreated. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> um, the best thing about Fat Tuesday was punchkies. Yeah. I don't know if that's as big a Milwaukee thing, but... Yeah, it is. But punchkies were... Uh, yeah. They were a fat kid's friend, and I was a fat kid. Right. Well, we have them they here. They got me through some hard times. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, would you, how many how many fish sandwiches would you have during Lent? I, I worked at Burger King and then McDonald's, so I... That was also... Yeah. Because you could... You were fasting, and you were fasting by eating fish sandwiches. It was, right. it was ideal. At what num what number of fish sandwiches does it? I'm sure there's a law for this within the you know the Roman Catholic canon. Like, is it the fourth fish sandwich where you're like, this is not fasting anymore? No, it's just a continuous act of fasting. So, I, so I would you say can have as many fish sandwiches. You're showing as your devotion. You can have as many sticking fish, it to the prats. You can have as much. Fish, you can have as many fish, fish sandwiches as you want. That's how I understood it, or at least how I practiced it. All of them with tartar sauce. I'm a big fan of tartar okay. sauce. I don't see a point of eating fish without tartar sauce. Okay. All right. Although, to be honest, I don't even know what tar- how you make tartar sauce. <laughs> I think it's just like relish and mayonnaise and ketchup or something mixed together. I don't think there's ketchup in it. Maybe not ketchup. Relish and mayonnaise or something. I think that's what my mother would call I don't know. To, she's listening. She'll have to send me okay. her recipe. I'm pretty sure she. I can remember her making it when we had fish sticks. All right. All right that, this, by the way, um, it's always interesting to me that fish is the animal that we turn into sticks. And not as opposed to what else? We don't do... Well, we do beef jerky, but that's like dried meat. But you don't make hamburger sticks. Hot dogs are kind of by nature sticks. But we call them chicken strips, not chicken sticks. But they really are sticks. Yeah, that's true. You know, I mean, there's actually quite a few things we make into sticks. I mean, have you ever been to a state fair? That Write that down as a free-for-all. Best thing that we make into sticks. 
I got it. All right, Pastor Walshman has come a long way here. We need to move on to something a little bit more serious, okay? serious for the next 45 minutes and we're going to talk about the new perspective of Paul. Some of you have heard of that. Some of you have not. Don't worry about it. We got the man to explain it and that's Pastor Daniel Waldschmidt from Burlington, Wisconsin, just south of here. So why don't we start off with this, where you went to school, um, family, um, you know, your continuing education, and then what what drew you, maybe you were forced in your schooling to uh, take a, a look at the new perspective of Paul. By the way, just side note, popsicles. Yeah. You said you were going to be quiet. Remind me of that for sticks. That okay. would be a good one. Well, it's really just sugar water that we made into a stick. But there's, okay, sorry okay. for interrupting. Right. Go ahead. Okay. That's no problem. Pastor Walsh. Now I got my focus back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Go well, ahead. you said my you said my family. I'm I'm married. My wife's name is Corey, and we have three children: uh, Luke and James and Justice. Luke is five years old. James is three years old, and Justice is about a year and a half. And we live in Burlington. I'm a pastor at St. John's. I love it there. And I got interested in this topic when I was a vicar. I was I was a vicar down in Texas, and about once a week we would have Bible study at this uh, town. And there was a Barnes and Noble there, and I like books, and so I'd always go in there. And I'd see I, I saw on the shelf one day Justification by N.T. Wright, and I had never heard of N.T. Wright before, but I knew about Justification, so I I saw that and. Uh, I, I started reading it a little bit and kind of led me down a really long rabbit trail, uh, and but but a fun rabbit trail, I think, the, and, and an important one. And so that's how I got uh, interested in the topic. And then when I, that was my vicar year, and then the next year was my senior year at Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary. And it was the first year that they did the senior thesis. They used to do a church history paper, and but my year when I was a senior was the first year that they opened it up that you could do anything at all. It didn't have to be church history. It could be anything that you'd be interested in. And I said, well, why don't I do this new perspective on Paul? And so I really, you know, kind of threw myself into that and tried to do as much research as I could on the new, on the new perspective. And so it was, it was just a lot of fun. And you, Mike, what did you do for your church history project, by the way? <laughs> yeah. So we should fill in people like before there was like the dissertation thesis, whatever you want to call it. It was sort of kind of you just did whatever you want and maybe you got a grade or not. Related I, to church history. Yeah. So um, let's just say it wasn't super high standards throughout the decades. And um, so I did mine on, I did a survey of all the Lutheran groups at that time in North America. I shouldn't say North America, Canada and the United States. And I found 36 of them. And so I did like a profile on like a very short profile it was not a very difficult nice. one what did you do i did a translation because you could do a translation instead of writing a paper yeah. oh, nice what'd you translate um i think some kalov and some baldwin very nice casuistry um, it was no oh, very nice uh had been translated before or not no okay that was kind of the rule yeah it had to be something that was not okay 
So you've been doing some, I know you've been doing some work at uh, Trinity and Deerfield. Why don't, you, uh, why don't you tell us about that before we move on? About a year into my ministry, I, I'm in Burlington and Deerfield is about an hour away from there. And I knew that they had a really good New Testament program. So I, I looked into going there and I, I did. And um, I have a master's degree now in New Testament from there. And one of the classes I did there was called New Testament Research, and the professor just randomly assigned papers, and I just happened to get the new perspective on oh, Paul for, for one of my papers, which was great. And you're like, so, <laughs> you didn't tell him, like, I already did a thesis on this? <laughs> yeah, that's right, I did. And, and so then I got to dig into it even more, and that was great. And then they asked me to do a paper on it for the symposium every year at Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary. So I got one year to do the um, paper on the new perspective. So, so then I got to dig into it even more. So it's been like a, over three times. That's right. 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 Yep. That's, a, that's excellent. So, um, Mike also got to do a paper there. I did, so but mine was... You know who didn't get to do a paper there? Uh, you? Yeah, no one likes me. You know, and which is, you should feel offended because this year they're doing Luther stuff. Uh, you didn't ever study or taught on Luther, so no, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you are you feeling sad? No, I'm, I'm not going to hug you. Huh? I'm not going to give you. A I'm hug. just saying I'm in esteemed company. Yeah, um, I'll buy you something later. Okay. Really? I will. Okay. In fact, I actually already bought you something. What'd you buy me? I'm not going to tell you. It's a surprise. Is it a stick? Nope. All it right. sort of looks like a stick, though. Okay. And I was going to surprise you with it, but I forgot something. So tomorrow you'll get a surprise gift from me. Consider this. I feel bad for you that your feelings got hurt. Oh, my feelings were hurt. I was just <laughs> observing that you guys are. <laughs> All right. So if I am somebody that sort of knows the Bible and I know who St. Paul is and I know he wrote Romans and I've memorized some of these passages and I hear that there's a new perspective, um, how would you how would you explain it to me very very briefly, and then maybe we'll go into more depth. I would say that the new perspective on Paul really starts with a new perspective on first century Judaism. So in 1977, there was a man by the name of E.P. Sanders who wrote a book called Paul and Palestinian Judaism. And before E.P. Sanders, there were a lot of Christian scholars who characterized Judaism in the first century as very work-righteous and very legalistic. And E.P. Sanders, in this book, he says that he sets out to destroy that view of first century Judaism, that Pharisees in the first century were not legalistic or work-righteous. He argues that Judaism in the first century is a religion of grace, that they understood grace just as much as we do. And I suppose if, if someone was, were talking with me about it, I would say, you know, how, how usually do we characterize a Pharisee? Mm -hmm. We usually characterize a Pharisee as someone who's very work-righteous, very legalistic. And what E.P. Sanders was saying is, if you look, actually look at Judaism in the first century, it wasn't like that at all. They very much believed in God's grace. And yes, they talked about following God's laws, but we talk about following God's laws, right? And us for us, following God's laws is a response to God's grace. And E.P. Sanders would say, it's the same thing for first century Jews, that they care about God's laws as a response to God's grace in electing Israel. And that's a fair enough criticism as far as it goes that we tend to say all Pharisees are this when when that's probably not true. Of course, the other side of it is 
are you telling me that there's nobody who had the opinio legis? And, you know, I mean, and I think you pointed out in your paper that... Mike, you should explain what that means, though. That, you know, kind of a, 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 a desire to, to fulfill a law, mm-hmm. right? And then it gets very uh, tr- problematic, of course, when you start thinking, I fulfilled a law in order for God's love to come upon me. Um, and I think you did a nice job in the paper mentioning that we're not saying that all all Pharisees or all first century Judaism was this, just saying that there were some people that were that. Um, So yeah, I think, I think you did a good job of doing that. And, and I think it's a fair criticism, right? We tend to say, well, we use it as pejorative in English. There's Mm -hmm. nobody like, there's nobody there that understood what grace was. Well, we have plenty of examples in the Bible of, in the new Testament of people who understood what grace was. Yeah. Can I, a quick question? Sure. E.P. Sanders, what's his confessional background, and is there a reason he's he's coming at this the way he, he chose to? Yeah, I think that E.P. Sanders, for his confessional background, I think he purposely tries to say that that doesn't have anything to do with his scholarship. I just mean, is so he I'm, Protestant or Catholic? I or? think he's, he's Protestant. Okay. Yes, he's Protestant. And where he's coming at this from is he really, I think, felt that it was unfair how Christian scholars characterized Judaism, that... And he said that he thought Judaism isn't at all like that, that they're not legalistic. They're not thinking that they're trying to earn their way into heaven. They don't think that if I do more good deeds than bad, that I'm going to get into heaven, that that's just not the way that they thought at all. So that's really where he's, where he's coming from, is he's trying to say, let's stop being so unfair to first century Judaism. And then the name, probably most people who have heard New Perspectives of Paul, that comes to mind, and you mentioned earlier, would be N.T. Wright. Mm-hmm. How do these two get connected? Yeah, I think that the what E.P. Sanders talked most about was first century Judaism. He also talked about Paul, but what the New Perspective scholars really picked up on was his understanding of was his understanding of first century Judaism. So how how do we get then to Paul? We've been talking about first century Judaism. What what the what the scholars what the scholars said is they said well okay if first century judaism was a religion of grace then what is paul arguing against mm-hmm. we thought that when he says you're justified by faith and not by the works of the law we thought that he was arguing against some type of work righteousness but if his contemporaries weren't work righteous, then that doesn't make historical sense for Paul to be arguing against work righteousness. So then what is he arguing against? And what the New Perspective scholars say is that he's arguing against a thought in first century Judaism that God's grace is restricted just to the Jewish nation that Paul's the, the apostle to the Gentiles, right? And so what he's arguing against is he's saying that we're saved by faith. We're not saved by, um, by following the Jewish ethnic uh, boundary markers like circumcision and food laws and Sabbath, that God's grace extends beyond the Jewish nation uh, to include anyone who has faith in Jesus. So that's how they would uh, characterize uh, Paul. And, and some of that, you can understand the impulse there. Um, uh, first of all, to be sensitive, you know, you read John and it's Jews this, Jews that. And John's not not being a racist or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's shorthand for... I heard John was Jewish. <laughs> in fact, I think he was, you know, we'll have to do a DNA test. Um, but shorthand for a specific 
group of leaders, I'm I'm already down the wrong road, but a specific theology, Mm -hmm. right? And so to be sensitive to that, I get get what what he's saying. And I I, I am attracted to the idea that, uh, you know, Everybody gets to be Jewish. That's the glory of of, Jude, uh, of the Jewish nation of, of the of the Israelite nation is that everybody gets to be Jewish through Jesus Christ. So the impulse is kind of nice, mm-hmm. but what do you give up when you start saying Saint Paul wasn't really talking about specifically justification by faith alone, but justification as in you have a good standing with God, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Yeah. One way to frame the discussion is, what question does justification answer? Does justification, the doctrine of justification, answer the question, how can a sinner stand before God? Does it answer that question? Which is what the Lutheran interpretation has taken, right? Um, Or does it answer the question, how can the Gentiles be part of the people of God? The new perspective on Paul wants to uh, say that Paul is talking more about the question, how can the Gentiles become part of the people of God, rather than answering the question, how can a uh, sinner stand before God? You mentioned before that, uh, that we all have an opinion legis, and, and, that's, and that's right. One thing that uh, the new perspective would say is that to have those kinds of concerns is more of a Middle Ages or Reformation way of thinking than a first century way of thinking. So it really starts with a man named Christer Stendhal who wrote a paper called The Apostle Paul and the Introspective Conscience of the West. And what Christer Stendhal was saying is that Martin Luther was very concerned with questions of how can I stand before a righteous God? But people in the first century weren't quite as concerned about that. And Paul wasn't quite as concerned about that. What Paul was more so concerned about was, how can the Gentiles be part of the people of God on equal footing with Jews? What a, a question that comes to mind with this then, and I think this is a, where there's been pushback among Luther, Lutherans with the new perspective on Paul is, um, I, I'll pick specifically Galatians, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and Luther's reading of Galatians is very important to Lutherans confessionally. It's it's one that's made it into uh, how we view law, and gospel, how we view two kinds of righteousness. What um, as far as Lutheran pushback against this or what they fear might be at risk from it, uh, what are the concerns that have arisen in, in that regard? And then I guess to piggyback on that question, and I can try to restate it again because I always throw multiple questions and that's not the best way to ask, would be, um, do you think um, Luther's take, for instance, on Galatians is undermined by this? I think it is put into the background. I think that the New Perspective scholars, um, like, for example, James Dunn, 
would say very emphatically that he's not trying to take anything away from Luther's interpretation of Paul, that he agrees with what Luther said and what Luther said was important and it really needed to be said, especially in Luther's setting. So James Dunn will be uh, very emphatic that he doesn't want to take anything away from Luther's understanding of Paul. It's just that he wants to add this, that, that that one um, part of what Paul was saying had an ethnic dimension, had an ethnic dimension to it. And I, th I think that that's true. I, I do think that the problem is that it still puts the, the thought of the sinner standing before God, I think, into the background more than what, what, what Paul does. I think actually Paul puts the sinner standing before God right in the foreground. The fact that he talks about justification in, in the midst of all of these Jew and Gentile issues is the, is, shows us that the way that Paul frames the discussion is about the sinners standing before God, right? Um, the fact that he talks about justification when he's talking about Jews and Gentiles means that Paul is thinking about how can a sinner stand before God and then he applies that to Jew and Gentile issues. And so I think that when we uh, frame our interpretation of Paul in terms of of how can a sinner stand before God, I don't think that we are looking at Paul through Reformation lenses. I think we're framing the discussion exactly how Paul frames it. Because when Paul is talking about Jew-Gentile issues, he goes to talk about justification, the sinner standing before God. So I think that we're thinking right along with Paul when we frame our interpretation of him in terms of how can a sinner stand before God. I think there's, a, there's always a good um, criticism that you know, are, are you reading St. Paul, you're reading history in general through your own contemporary eyes? Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's, that's fair. Um, and, and I could see, okay, Luther, Luther conscious bound, standing before God, he's going to be drawn to Paul, mm -hmm. right? But that doesn't mean that that's not what Paul was saying. And of course, the, you know, the, the obvious thing to point out to uh, to somebody uh, like Saunders or N.T. Wright. And by the way, we love, we like N.T. Wright. He's a good guy and, and written some awesome stuff. Um, is you too are writing at a time that, you know, where you're going to have your own influences. And I wonder if we're so drawn to post-enlightenment idea of, of ethnicities, right? Instead of seeing, when I say Jew and Gentile, and when St. Paul says Jew and Gentile, he doesn't, he's not necessarily, the first thing that would pop into his mind would not have been the DNA of these people, but of their religion, of their culture, of everything, right? And I, and I, I just wonder if that, and you would um, ask, I'm going to ask you this question. Do you think that these authors done and to write? that they fall into that trap a little bit or are they, are they trying to be pretty fair here with, with when it comes to highlighting the ethnicity, ethnicity and culture of Judaism versus Gentiles rather than the religious dimension? Yeah, I, I, I honestly have a great deal of respect for James Dunn and N.T. Wright. I think they're first-rate scholars and I, I really believe them when they say I'm not trying to take anything away from Martin Luther. I, I just think that by putting into the, into the foreground the sinners standing before God, I, I don't think that we are doing anything that 
that's that's foreign to Paul. I don't think we're reading Paul outside of a first century context, e- even with all of these insights um, factored in, that Paul is dealing with Jews and Gentiles. And he does want to emphasize that the Gentiles are part of the people of God. There's a lot about that mm-hmm. in Ephesians. There's a lot about that in just about every one of Paul's letters. So I really think that, they, that the new perspective is highlighting something important I just, I, I just would still want that the sinner standing before God is is put right in the foreground. I, th- I still think that that is the correct way to read the Apostle Paul. Is one of the things that's interesting to me about this is, um, I think there's things that would um, resonate in the new perspectives on Paul with kind of a 20th century German Protestant, you know, academic theology as well. And one of them seems to be, and I guess I, I would like to be corrected if I'm wrong, and if I'm right, maybe you can unpack it a bit, an emphasis on ecclesiology over soteriology. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that, just for listeners, what we mean is an emphasis on the church as this place, uh, God's creation, where people come together and this transfa- transformational thing is going to happen. It's, it, I'm not being entirely fair in how I'm characterizing it. <clears throat> um, Versus soteriology, I think the way you keep phrasing it, which is good, is me before God and and how I am righteous in His sight. Is and and you and you see that in the in the twentieth century Germans, right? Um, and I think among the Germans, part of the reason for this move um, is because uh, maybe the emphasis on personal sinfulness and um, the atonement and things like that seem outdated to them. Uh, it's not a way to reach 20 and 21st century uh, Western, you know, uh, liberal, not liberal like conservative liberal, but liberal like we're all liberal, yeah, yeah, uh, people. Um, Do you see in the new perspectives on Paul a desire among the theologians to make that a move theologically, or do you think that's just where it ends up as they make their observations about first century Judaism? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know for sure. I do think there is a noticeable move towards ecclesiology, but I think that they would say that we're seeing this as we read Paul. And I think that that is part of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, for example, um, that there is a lot about ecclesiology in Paul. So what they would say is is that this is something we're really seeing as we read the apostle. And I think I would just say that uh, the sinner standing before God is something I'm really seeing in the apostle too. It's not something that that only Martin Luther saw. And so is is it fair to say that this is predominantly still a Protestant outlook, um, that most of the people who are taking or adopting or making use of, to some extent, these new perspectives with Paul, it's still largely Protestant in its inclinations. I mean, mm-hmm. I hear you saying that pretty much when you emphasize that they're still saying faith is, is mm-hmm. central. Um, I'm assuming this is not something that's caught on as much in, in Roman Catholic theological circles. Not that I know of. I'm... I'm not familiar with Joseph Fitzmaier's commentary on Romans, but I've heard that um, Joseph Fitzmaier was a Roman Catholic scholar, and I, I, I've heard that he doesn't deal much with the New Perspective in his Romans commentary in the um, Anchor Bible commentary series, and he's Roman Catholic. So that might speak to that, that maybe this is a, 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 a Protestant thing, mostly. 
And then what um what what would you say is the the single most benefit you put a lot of time into studying and I don't think you'd do that if you didn't see benefits from it as well. From a Lutheran perspective, and let's for fun just say a synodical conference Lutheran perspective. Mm-hmm. So largely somewhat insulated from the theology of the the twentieth and twenty first century of academic German theology or, or you know, um Oxford stuff and what would you say is the most beneficial corrective um, from this for how we pastor, how we preach, how we do theology in a way that impacts the lay people? The most beneficial thing for me is that it's really gotten me back into the text, that I think it forces me to wrestle with the text itself and to read the Apostle Paul and to read him in Greek and to read him in English and to read entire letters at one time and to really wrestle with the text and ask yourself, am I really seeing what I'm seeing here? And, or am I just looking at it with, um, with uh, you know, Reformation glasses on? Or, or, am I really, or am I really understanding the apostle? That's been the most beneficial part for me is just to wrestle with Romans and to wrestle with Galatians. And I think you get, you get great spiritual benefit from that. And I think something uh, that's helpful to think about and maybe unpack someone too, because you bring up something that is important. And I think it's, something that people in our circles might be uncomfortable with, but that they ought not be. And that's, there's a certain recognition that the reformers or Aquinas or that people, when they do theology, are doing theology within their age, Mm -hmm. um, within their culture, and for the people they're serving. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you've mentioned a couple times, you know, being aware of asking is how this text is, often received now um, a product of theology being done through a certain lens. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do you navigate? How do, I think the fear that some people in our circles might have in talking that way is that you're, um, you're almost running the danger of, of, of uh, undermining the biblical text as if it's not certain in its meaning. And, mm-hmm. and none of us are doing that. I mean, Mike might be, I don't know, but... Um, <laughs> But at the same time, as Wisconsin Synod Lutherans and as uh, having the Wauwatosans as fathers in the faith, I think there's a very Wauwatosan thing about being will to, willing to consider those things and, and wrestle with them. Um, we, we subscribe to the confessions because they are a proper interpretation of the Word of God. And yet the Wauwatosans were also very clear, but you go to the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you explain maybe for a way um, that people in our circles, and especially maybe lay people can understand, that this is not something that's um, done to undermine the biblical text, but actually out of reverence for it. I don't know if I'm making sense in how I'm saying that. Yeah, you're, you're making perfect sense. I, at the symposium this past year, Professor Cherney, I heard him say that what we should do is we should acknowledge our situatedness. And I thought that that was a good thing to say, that we should acknowledge that all of us are at a time in history and that we're all influenced by the ideas around us and we all bring those ideas to the text. And we're thinking in a certain language. And- yeah, exactly. And, and I think that it's a healthy thing for us to uh, just acknowledge that and then to read as much as we can about someone who reads it from a different perspective. Um, I think that we just read as much as we possibly can and that we just understand all of these different perspectives 
perspectives, but then still ground ourselves uh, in the text. Um, I think that acknowledges our own situatedness, and then it, it also brings us back to the text to keep wrestling with that. And I think there's something in there to um, respect for the, uh, the depth of a text. I think to say, um, for instance, take a, a Galatians, and it's just on my brain because I was teaching to the freshman. Mm-hmm. To say that Luther went to Galatians and these are the primary things that stood out to him. Well, the reason those are the things that stood out to him is that that's what he was wrestling with and dealing with at his time. Yep. To say um, that a, a first century Jew who is converted to Christianity might go to that same epistle and walk away with different emphases, not contra- contradicting, but different, um, to me, is a testimony to the depth of the text and and not um, an undermining of it. And I guess the comparison I would make, and then I would have you guys react and tell me if I'm, I'm erring here, would be, if, let's say we all preach the one-year or the three-year lectionary over a 40-year ministry, should God... Um, Grant us that lifespan and the in the, the the mercy to remain in, in the office, which of course none of us deserve. Hopefully our sermons on those same texts that we maybe preach on, if you're using the one year, forty times, the three year oh shoot, no, I had to do math. Fifteen, sixteen times. Um they're not gonna be identical sermons and in they're but they might all be equally textual. Um they might be preached all in the same parish and still vary greatly. Um, how do how do we um, explain that without um, saying, which we're not saying, um, in so you know a a, a postmodern sort of way, um, that that's because we stand over the text and and really not the author but the reader has. The, the real authority and then takes that text and applies it as they see fit. Um, how, how do those things balance out? And I, either of you can go where you want to go with that. I, I think it's useful to compare Paul, not to people across centuries, but to try to compare Paul to his contemporaries and some interesting things come out. When I, when I was at Trinity, one of the professors there named David Powell said, he told me once that you should always compare what Paul says uh, to what other people say in his time about the same subject. And I think that uh, interesting things come out. So for example, let's read what Paul says about grace and compare that to what the rabbis say about grace and see what's the same and see what's different. I, the, I, I, f- I forget, I think his name's John Barkley is the name of the, the guy I mentioned in the paper that does exactly this. And some interesting things come out. Now we are not um, comparing Paul with Martin Luther. Now we're comparing Paul with people who are roughly contemporary with him. And, and when then you, asking if Luther understood him correctly. Yeah, and then, and <laughs> exactly, very good. And, and w- when you compare Paul with the, Paul's definition of grace with the definition of grace in first century Judaism, some interesting things come out. For example, the rabbis will say that God chose Israel. And in a sense, God chose Israel by grace. But then it's interesting, they will also ask, 
why, why did God choose Israel and not the other nations? And they'll give answers to that, like, well, um, God asked the other nations if they would accept the Torah, and all of the other nations said no, and Israel said yes. Or, they, or they'll give another answer that God foresaw that Israel would obey the Torah. And so that's why God gave to them the Torah. To now, the fide of the uh, first century. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's, ex- that's exactly right. It sounds, it, that's exactly right. And so we start to ask, is that definition of grace the same as Paul's? definition of grace. Uh, And when we look at Paul's definition of grace, we see that he says that if it's by grace, then it can't be by works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And so now what we're doing is we're not comparing Paul's definition of grace to somebody um, many centuries later. We're, We're comparing Paul's definition of grace to someone who's roughly contemporary with him, and then interesting things come out. And then we can ask the question, did Martin Luther get Paul right? And I think that he did. I, I think that yeah. he did get Paul right. So, especially for N.T. Wright, um, you know, he, he's 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 trying to be, he's trying to balance these two things. Although he he's fun to listen to it uh, and uh, to 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 read. He's like ah Lutherans, you know, and mm-hmm. you know. So he, he doesn't hide that he's he's not hiding behind academia. He's like, listen, I think the Lutheran way of reading this is wrong, which is kind of refreshing. Um, but he's like, yeah, we're saved by faith alone. And we have this status, and I think that's what he means by justification, like the status on the right, you're on the right side with God kind right. of thing. Yeah. And then the law is good then because the law sort of is what you do afterwards. And and he almost seems to say, and, 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 and I'm asking you if he, he actually says this or not, this is what he means, but he, at least to me, seems to say, you follow the law to sort of prove to everybody in yourself that you're on the right side. I don't, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know if, if he would characterize it that way. I haven't, I haven't read, uh, to be honest, I haven't read N.T. Wright in a while. So I, I'm, I'm, um, I'm sorry to say I'm a little bit rusty. Sure, that's on him. all right. Um, I, so I'm not sure. I just get this impression that for him, the law is still either it's, it's kind of the classic silly sermon that we got. You're sinful. God loves you. Now in your thankfulness, this is what you're going to do and this is what you do do. And it and it's more it ends up being more law if that's the steady diet that you're getting Sunday in uh, and Sunday out. And I, and I feel he like he's satisfied with that. And to me my Lutheran ears again, you know, I'm looking through 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 my own lens here. Just doesn't really fully develop what grace is. Mm-hmm. So he can say, yeah, we believe that you're saved by grace alone, but and Boy, it ju- it just doesn't seem like he fully understands what grace is in the way that we do, and I mm-hmm. don't know if that's fair or not. So I'm asking you to respond. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure if that's a fair characterization of N.T. Wright. Uh, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Um, I'd have to go do some more reading on him. And N.T. Wright is great to read if you've never read N.T. Wright. Mm-hmm. He he really is. He really is a fun read. And uh, th- this I've I've learned a great deal of insights from N.T. Wright. He's got a book uh, off the subject. He's got a book on the resurrection, right, right. which is just great. Uh, 
Uh, and so th th I, I really do respect uh, N.T. Wright. Um, I, from what I remember of what I wrote the, from what I wrote the paper, um, that he, he'll talk about justification more so as covenant language. Mm -hmm. um, so the fact that God justifies you means that you are in the covenant. And I, I think, in the, if I remember right in the paper, um, that what I said and following a bunch of other mm -hmm. people is that uh, justification language itself is more so the language of a courtroom where the judge declares me not guilty. To be justified is the opposite of being condemned. Uh, so when God justifies me, um, that means that I'm innocent in his sight. And again, we're back to the sinners standing before God. And I think what, what N.T. Wright would maybe say back to me is he would say, okay, but look at the context of where Paul uses justification language. In Galatians, for example, if we read Galatians chapter two. Uh, in early in Galatians chapter two, Paul talks about how he refused to have Titus circumcised. And he then, um, Peter. yeah, exactly. And then he opposes Peter. And why does he oppose Peter? He opposes Peter because he refuses to eat with the, the Gentiles. Gentiles. And so what N.T. Wright would say to me and what James Dunn would say to me is, it seems like the issue is that uh, who can who can eat with whom and who can be part of the covenant people. It seems to be like that's what the issue is in the context. And I think that's when I would say that, but isn't it interesting that Paul frames this discussion in justification language, that Paul turns the discussion and to talk about... Personal language, he says, for I have been crucified Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, that's, that's a good point, that it's personal language too, yeah. Um, a question I have, and... Um, this partly comes up because this is sometimes criticisms that Catholic theologians will take of how Luther takes um, mm -hmm. the epistles and especially Galatians. Is Luther makes a move in there, and when Paul talks about law, Luther takes that not only to mean Mosaic law, mm -hmm. um, but law in general. Yeah. Right. So uh, the Catholic theologian at times will say, "Well, what Paul is talking about is Mosaic law, not law itself," and that makes mm -hmm. perfect sense for a Catholic theologian to say that because. Yeah. Um, of, you know, faith and works together in, in Catholic theology. Does the new perspective on Paul have any impact on how law is taken when Paul is speaking about law? Yeah, thank you very much for bringing that up. We're, we're on a mind meld because I was actually just thinking we should probably talk about works of the law. Uh -huh. the, there's a specific phrase that Paul uses in Galatians chapter 2 and in Romans chapter 3. Ta erga tu namu is what it is in Greek. The works of the law. And yes, uh, the new perspective will very much take law there as the Mosaic law. And I would agree with them to a certain extent that it does seem like um, Paul is talking about uh, the Mosaic law. Now, if I could just give a little bit more history on the new perspective, uh, E.P. Sanders said that uh, Judaism was a religion of grace, and then um, James Dunn said, okay, how does that affect the way that we read Paul? So when Paul says that we're saved by faith and not by works of the law, what does the phrase works of the law mean? And he said, well, it's not that they're trying to uh, earn their way into heaven, it, but it's that they are, but maybe it's that they are trying to restrict God's grace to just the Jewish nation. And so what he, the, the way that James Dunn interpreted the works of the law is he said, it refers to all the works of the law, but it especially refers to those works of the law that would distinguish a Jew from a Gentile. So what are the works of the 
law that would distinguish a Jew from the Gentile. It wouldn't be the moral things mostly. What it would be is uh, things like circumcision. That would distinguish a Jew from a Gentile. Or the food laws that uh, Gentiles eat this, Jews don't eat that. That distinguishes a Jew from a Gentile. And James Dunn would be very quick to point out, that's the stuff that Paul's talking about in Galatians chapter 2. I refuse to have Titus circumcised. Peter uh, would eat with the Gentiles, I but wish then... I they go all the way and emasculate themselves. Exact, yeah, exactly. And, 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 and Peter, he was eating with the Gentiles, but as soon as the people from James showed up, he didn't eat with them anymore. So uh, James Dunn would say that works of the law, um, it refers to all the, wor- all the law, but it especially focuses on what he called the boundary markers. Uh, what would distinguish a Jew from a Gentile? And that would fit very much in with what you were just saying, that we're talking here about the Jewish law. When I've thought about that, I, I have, I've, I've kind of said, okay, I do think that when, when, he, when he says ta'erga tunamu, uh, tunamu, the law, I think refers to the Mosaic law. But I would also say that it refers to all the works of the law, which includes the Ten Commandments and, and includes all of the moral law. And, I mean, if you're not going to be justified by the Mosaic law that God gave, well, then what law are you going to be justified right. by, <laughs> right? Well, and Luther uh, would say, I mean, all the Ten Commandments are basically present in natural law, mm-hmm. with the exception of maybe the, the Sabbath day. But, yep. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I, I think, and I, sorry for interrupting, and I'll let you unpack That's more, but, but yeah, so if we're taking it as law, Mosaic law, that doesn't mean we're limiting it, limiting it to ceremonial law. Correct. Exactly. <laughs> yes. That, that's a perfect way to say what I was trying to get at, is that, if, is that I, I admit that Tunamu refers, first of all, to the Mosaic law, but that doesn't mean um, restricting it to just the ceremonial law. It would also include the moral aspects of the law, which if, if you keep reading in Romans chapters 3 and 4, in Romans chapter 4, um, Paul, Paul brings up the case of David, um, that he was justified, um, by, not, by, not by works, but by faith. And with David, his sin was certainly a moral issue, not a, not a ceremonial issue. And um, along those lines, I'm guessing among those who would hold to the new perspective on Paul or new perspectives, as there's various nuances of it, mm-hmm. m- most of them are not going to want to jump on board with the, the Lutheran dialectic of law and gospel, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's definitely true. Yes. Yeah. Historically, uh, you may not know the answer to this or not, but, uh, you know, in recent history, I should say, um, is there just gaining more uh, traction within preaching, or is it just this is just something that uh, some academics are doing and it's interesting and whatever? I think it will certainly. Uh, when when is the preacher going to come across this? I think it's definitely he's get definitely going to come across it when he reads commentaries. And as he reads commentaries for sermon prep, he's going to come across the new perspective on Paul, and so he's going to wonder what what this mm-hmm. is. One of the best commentaries on uh, Romans, I think, is the one by Douglas Moo. Mm-hmm. And uh, D- Douglas Moo, I think, is one of the best with the new perspective. I heard D.A. Carson say once that he's really wi- that Moo is really wise about this, that he sees the certain aspects of wisdom in it, but then also criticizes it um, in, in, in a fair way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if, if you pick up Douglas Moo's commentary on Romans, which, which I think is one of the best ones out there, uh, that, uh, that he'll... He'll, he'll deal with it in a very fair way. 
One one of the last question for me would be: I know there was a lot of evangelicals who were worked up about this, mm-hmm. um, and I'm guessing their opposition wouldn't come like a Lutheran's might be from uh, the concern to have long gospel be the lens for reading scripture. What was the the main thrust of evangelical opposition to this? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it was. It's it's interesting that this discussion kind of got. Uh, worked through a lot of phases. So it started with E.P. Sanders and then James Dunn, I think in 1982 maybe, uh, because, I mean, this discussion's been going on for quite some time, and so it's good to recognize that and recognize that the discussion has morphed as it's gone over. So E.P. Sanders wrote in 1977, James Dunn wrote in 1982 about the works of the law, focusing on the boundary markers, and then some people criticized him, and then he clarified and said, no, I'm not saying that works of the law just refers to boundary markers. I'm saying it refers to the whole law, but especially the boundary markers. And I think when evangelical opposition came in is perhaps when um, when N.T. Wright was saying that justification has a covenantal uh, Uh, facet to it. Um, That to be justified means that you're declared a member of the covenant. And I think evangelicals came and said, no, justification means that I'm declared right before God. And N.T. Wright came back and said, yeah, that's one aspect of justification that I'm declared right before God, but another aspect of it is that you're also part of the covenant. So you kind of have to see how this uh, discussion kind of morphs, because it's like one person will say one thing and and then it will get criticized and then the the point of view will be clarified so it kind of you kind of have to fo- you have to do a lot of reading you have to follow along um, how the discussion morphs well no i appreciate it. it's been very helpful for me and helped to clarify uh, a lot of questions i've had when it comes to it i think for listeners hopefully we just had that an episode on the pauline epistles um it shows the uh the importance of reading the scriptures responsibly um, and that theology is not a, a static thing. It's not enough to just um, want to regurgitate the past, uh, to repristinate. Um, but if we believe the text is a, a living, breathing thing, if we believe we find there the viva vox, the, the living voice of God, um, I, I thank Pastor Walshmitt for pointing out to us that that means we're going to keep going into it and, and asking it questions um, and standing under it, let it be authoritative to us rather than us bringing in constrictive no- notions that are, are potentially foreign to the text. Um, and so I think that's something that's good for listeners to keep in mind. Um, I think just think another good thing for listeners to keep in mind, especially lay people, is as we've had this discussion, uh, I haven't heard a single thing that would lead us to uh, to question the importance of the text or our confession of the faith, but rather things that uh, can drive us deeper uh, into them. This episode, I should say, actually came about because a listener emailed and asked for it. So what does that mean we do sometimes, Mike? We, we look at emails. Peter sends them to us, and we're not as good as at always at replying. There's some we have in the works that we need to reply to. Um, but this semester's been a little crazy, so... Um, do keep sending them. We will work on getting back. But uh, we do appreciate that because it ended up uh, that we knew a guy. Um, we've met before when I was uh, presenting, uh, not at your church, but for your circuit. I That's think. right, for and, our conference. Uh, I know you and Mike have met. And, and so we appreciate having you on. We'll have to maybe get you back sometime. I think uh, there's a lot we could do with New Testament stuff. And so we thank you for that. At the end of the day, um, 
the text is the text, and, and, and God, through the text, wants to make things very clear to us, especially our salvation. And I like that you keep coming back to the before God, before God, before God. And when it comes to how we stand before God, I think there's no reason, no matter what perspective or theory one might come up with, to doubt that at the end of the day, uh, we stand righteous, having been justified. And that means as we go and live our life, we're uh, able to let the bird fly. Every evening when the sun goes down, get with my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink. I set them up, another round. I set them up, another round. I set them up, another round. One more round won't get me down. I said, honey, I don't care.